Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program for caregivers' practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer. Today's program is a collaborative partnership between the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and we're delighted to be working so closely with the Longevity Foundation, and you'll be hearing more about all of the programs we have um, that really um, are a great tribute to the Longevity Foundation's um, commitment to providing services for people um, living with lung cancer. Um, today's program um, is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an, educa an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have on the program today over 215 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, New Zealand, Romania, and uh, Turkey. So this is a bit of a global call as well. Obviously, this topic is one that is of great interest to everyone, both in the United States and internationally as well. And today's program is part two of Life with Lung Cancer. Uh, and we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joshua Sabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, NYU Lincoln Health, Perlmutter Cancer Center. Dr. Sabari will be addressing an overview of lung cancer and, and the current standard of care in the context of COVID-19 and the caregiver's role in decision-making for a loved one with lung cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to be on the call and uh, to share uh, some uh, sort, of, sort of knowledge and, and information with the caregivers and the family members. So uh, again, Dr. Sabari, I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at NYU, so I really sub-specialize in seeing patients who have lung cancers. And what I want to do is really give a broad overview of management of lung cancer, how we think about lung cancer, but really in the context of sort of COVID-19. And, and here being in NYU, it's sort of the epicenter. Uh, we've sort of been through this and through the ringer, and things are, are, are fortunate looking a little bit better, but I do think it's going to change how we think of uh, treatment of patients with lung cancer even moving forward. So in, in general, uh, patients are generally going to present with some form of symptom, uh, either shortness of breath, cough, weight loss, and that, that's going to generate uh, either a visit to a physician or to a hospital or emergency room. So the first point I'll make here is that from caregivers, when your family members have symptoms, any symptom, even if they're already diagnosed with lung cancer, I think it's important to bring that up. We've seen a lot of delays in care given COVID-19 a lot of concerns about having family members uh, visit physicians or emergency rooms uh, because of the risk and the, the concern. But what I would say is delaying care uh, sometimes actually can be more harmful uh, than actually obtaining correct care. Most hospitals have now separated uh, and, you know, potentially infectious patients from non-infectious patients. So critical to access care uh, when needed. And again, all patients are being COVID tested now by PCR, the nasal swab, as well as by antibody tests. So when someone has a symptom uh, concerning for lung cancer, it's important to get imaging. And the first imaging that we normally obtain uh, is either a chest x-ray then followed by a CAT scan. And a CT scan of the chest is going to give us information if there is a primary mass or primary lung mass. And then from there, the workup becomes relatively complicated because it can go down many different routes. But one of the most important things is to understand the staging, meaning where did the cancer start and where has the cancer gone in the body? And we do that in two ways. Uh, we generally do that with a PET scan. A PET scan is a, small, a more detailed uh, CAT scan uh, where you're looking at uptake or avidity or, or sort of brightness of uh, a lesion to understand sort of the activity of the disease in the body. And that's going to help us understand if the cancer has spread to any other places in the body. 
We also always want to get an MRI of the brain uh, because uh, we know that PET scans are not ideal at visualizing the brain. So with an MRI of the brain and a PET scan of the entire body, we're then able to accurately say this is the potential stage, meaning this is where the cancer started, uh, this is where we think the cancer has gone. And, and I would say that in the COVID era, it's been very difficult to get these images for patients. So PET scans have been delayed, MRIs have been delayed. Uh, we are now better over the last, uh, I would say, you know, three or four weeks now. But it's important to, you know, get into the doctor, see the doctor, and to establish these uh, tests because, you know, obviously of these delays at this time, it's important to not, you know, you know sort of, you know, and I think caregivers here can really push, uh, can push the, the patient themselves, but can also push the physician and the treating team uh, to really expedite these studies, even under the current circumstances that we're in. So once we understand where the disease is, we always want to obtain a tissue biopsy, meaning actually access a piece of the tumor uh, to then understand what it looks like under the microscope. And the reason we do that is twofold. We want to understand the histology, meaning what type of lung cancer it is. And we'll talk briefly, there are multiple different types of lung cancer. And then furthermore, we want to interrogate the cancer, meaning we want to understand what genetic abnormalities are in the cancer, because that might help guide further treatment down the road. Uh, so there's two ways to do a biopsy. Uh, biopsies can be done either percutaneously through the chest wall with an image uh, that's usually done by an interventional radiologist. And we can also do uh, sort of uh, um, a bronchoscopy or a camera that goes into the mouth where a biopsy is obtained sort of from within. Uh, again, both of these procedures have been uh, sort of difficult to obtain uh, given COVID-19, but at our center, uh, we very rapidly ramped this up. So there have been no delays over the last four or five weeks now. So patients are getting uh, imaging. Uh, they're getting COVID-19 testing five days uh, before their procedure, and these procedures are safe because we know that the patients uh, are negative, meaning do not have COVID, and then the practitioners are also being tested. So the practitioners are known weekly to be negative. And if there is a practitioner who is positive, uh, that practitioner would not be uh, performing that procedure, and vice versa. If the patient is tested positive, we would wait until the COVID test was negative prior to moving forward. And there are a lot of patients who do have COVID uh, who are relatively asymptomatic, um, and, and therefore, we're going to ask if there are any active symptoms. So if someone is COVID positive and asymptomatic, we may sort of have a, 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 a sort of lower threshold uh, to potentially do that procedure. So once we obtain a histologic uh, diagnosis, meaning we understand what type of cancer it is, there are two major subtypes. Uh, there is small cell lung cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. So non-small cell lung cancer is the most common type, happens in about 85% or so of patients. And that's really what we'll focus on for the next five minutes of the call. Uh, in non-small cell lung cancer, the most common subtype is called adenocarcinoma, or a cancer that arises in a cell that produces mucus, or a gland cell. Adeno is glandular, uh, carcinoma is cancer, so a cancer of a gland cell. And then the second most common type of lung cancer is called squamous cell cancer, and that's a cancer that arises in a cell that lines, or an epithelial cell, lines sort of of uh, um, uh, the, the lung area or the breathing tubes. Now, when we identify a lung cancer and we identify the histology or what subtype of cancer it is, really important to obtain molecular testing. And what do I mean by molecular testing? So really since about 2003, 2004, we've been able to actually sequence the, the genome, meaning understand what genetic abnormalities are driving a cancer. Um, and now it's actually common practice, standard of care, actually written out uh, clearly in the guidelines that all patients diagnosed with a lung cancer that is stage four, meaning that started in the lung and has spread to other parts of the body, should obtain um, uh, next generation sequencing, meaning molecular you know, studies of the cancer to understand you know, what are the genetics here. Now, whenever time I say genetics, people are always worried about, oh, is this something I inherited from mom and dad? So I want to make the clear point that when we talk about genetics in cancer, we're generally talking about somatic alterations. Those are genetic mutations that are generally acquired from the environment, either from a toxin or from an exposure. And, and, and in sort of contrast to that, we talk about germline alterations. Germline alterations, those are mutations that you inherit from mom and dad and have a risk of passing on to children. Those are not commonly identified in lung cancer. So generally what we're looking for are somatic alterations, alterations that are seen or acquired from the environment. So 
So again, with COVID, the biopsies have been difficult or delayed. Getting next generation sequencing on the tissue has been delayed. And one thing that I've seen a, a, a great increase in and, and, and something that I've done as well in my clinical practice is starting to really order liquid biopsy. Uh, and there are many different companies for liquid biopsy, but it's a similar assay. You draw a blood test and it's about 10 mLs or 10 cc's of blood in each tube, so two tubes. And we're sending that test out to a company or doing the sequencing internally at our own institution. And what we're able to identify with pretty high certainty is the molecular or you know, driver alteration in the cancer uh, from the blood. And this, I think, has been very, very helpful because even without a tissue diagnosis, even without you know, a molecular testing from the, the tumor tissue itself, I've been able to start multiple patients on targeted therapies, pills, from identifying a driver mutation in the plasma from these liquid biopsies. Now, oftentimes we do not identify a mutation or a driver in the plasma. This is important because this does not mean that it's negative. It's just inconclusive. And then we really need to fall back on the tissue testing itself. And furthermore, some patients don't have driver alterations that are actionable, meaning that we can act upon with therapies. And that's really when we start to think more about, you know, chemotherapy and or immunotherapy, which we'll end with. But if we're able to identify a driver alteration that is actionable, I would recommend, you know, using uh, um, a targeted therapy, a pill. And the most common ones that we see are EGFR or epidermal growth factor receptor occurs in about 20 to 25% of people diagnosed with lung cancer, more commonly seen in people who have never smoked. And then ALK rearrangements are the second most common, occurring about 4 to 7% of patients uh, diagnosed with lung cancer, also more commonly seen in never smokers. But that being said, there are about 11 now or even 12 um, different alterations that are actionable, meaning that we have potential match-targeted therapies for. Now, when we don't identify a mutation or don't have an actionable alteration, the next thing that we look at is something called the PDL1 expression on the cancer cells. The PDL1 stands for program death ligand 1, and that's simply a cloak or a disguise on the cancer cells that will predict whether immunotherapy, right, which sort of revs up the immune system to better recognize and attack cancer, that'll tell us whether immunotherapy will be a good option or not. So if the cancer cancer cells are, are highly cloaked or highly disguised, it means it's preventing the normal immune system from recognizing them. And by blocking this PDL1 or by removing the cloak, uh, medicines like pembrolizumab, uh, which are PD1 inhibitors, are approved in the first-line setting. And for people who have a high level of disguise greater than 50, I recommend giving pembrolizumab alone. Now, lots of concerns given COVID-19 about inflammatory syndromes, uh, but as we actually study our patient population, population, and we have more and more uh, sort of robust data from other institutions, um, the risk of immunotherapy actually is very low in the COVID-19 era. So it does not seem to actually harbor a poorer outcome or poorer risk to patients. So personally, I feel that it is safe to give immunotherapy in patients, even in the COVID era, and, and, and I've been telling patients that, and we have not been delaying care. The other type of therapy that we do use in lung cancer is chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is usually a toxic medicine, meaning it can kill both cancer cells, but unfortunately also normal cells. And, you know, chemotherapy um, has thought to be sort of uh, slightly increased risk during the COVID-19 era. However, the benefits of using chemotherapy, I think, in our patients with lung cancer far outweigh the potential risk. So it's in my patients who have a low level of PD-L1 expression or this cloak or disguise on the cancer cells that I'm generally going to recommend the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And we have robust data there to support that. So, you know, given sort of lung cancer is complicated, and I think as a caregiver, the role here should really be to support your loved one in A, do they want treatment? What treatment are they willing to get? And also to support them in their decision and in their treatment and in their sort of uh, treatment plan. Also, to a, a quick plug uh, to our team and, and our, our, our team members, uh, caregivers can play a huge role in engaging and accessing team members and team care, both from the physician to the nurse practitioners to the nursing to the social working team. So I think it's very, very important as a, a caregiver, if the patient themselves is willing and wants this, uh, to really access and engage their care. I think it, it makes for uh, better outcomes overall for our patients. Wow. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Sabari. That was really outstanding, and what a wonderful setting the stage for today's program. A wonderful overview of lung cancer um, and current standard of care uh, in the context of COVID-19, and also just a real wonderful plug for caregivers and how important they are. So thank you. Any other questions for you during the Q&A? Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to discuss the role of caregiver, including communicating with the healthcare team and challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, and also suggests guidelines when preparing for telemedicine, telehealth appointments, including the long-distance caregiver. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you for all the participants in today's call. It's sometimes hard to set some time aside to get some information, but we hope this information will be valuable to you and your family. The kinds of things that uh, until this year we discussed about um, what caregivers can do and where they fit into the um, cancer treatment scheme uh, has been altered by the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Um, uh, traditionally, we have advocated that when uh, patients, especially at the first visit or the first couple of visits, goes for the consultations to the medical oncologist, the surgical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, and any of the other providers involved in their care, that they would take a family member or a trusted friend or someone with them who um, has a good pad and a good pen and can make some notes and can even help um, remind the patient about questions that they have may have had or may, may be go going to have about their treatment and um, what they need to do and what's expected of them and what their life will be like in the coming weeks or months. This has been turned a little bit by our current situation where um, a number of the uh, visits are being done on the telephone or through a video conference, telehealth visit. Um, we also find that when we go to our treatment centers, uh, when things cannot be done remotely and we uh, go to see one of the providers, uh, caregivers are often not even let in the building uh, because that's more people in a smaller space with a perhaps increased risk of uh, spreading the COVID-19 virus. So caregivers um, are extremely crucial, but because of the current situation, may actually be left out of the process. So we, we need to really figure out a workaround around that. Uh, but we, we do believe that caregivers are the eyes, the ears, and sometimes even the voice of a patient who may be uh, feeling too sick and not be able to ask the right questions and advocate uh, for themselves. Um, there's, a, there's sort of a common thing that happens in most medical visits of practically every specialty, and in oncology there's no exception. Um, when we first meet a provider, pretty much of any specialty, that provider will generally introduce themselves. Hopefully, that's the best way to start out. And then they say something like, how are you? And our reflex answer is pretty much always fine, um, even when we're not. <laughs> or sometimes people feel so sick and they can't imagine why someone would ask that type of question. But finding out how you are is very crucial to the treatments you get and the decisions that are made. So um, I would take that question pretty seriously, not just a, an exercise in being, um, uh, you know, uh, being socially correct. Um, sometimes when, uh, especially as the treatment plan unfolds and we find that we are in the midst of multimodal treatment, surgery, chemotherapy, and the different types of chemotherapy you heard about, intravenous oral chemotherapy, immunotherapies, um, or, um, or getting radiation. It's hard to know which of the teams is in charge at any given moment. Sometimes it's one of the subspecialist oncologists, medical, surgical, or radiation, all throughout the treatment. But sometimes it changes from uh, department to department as that treatment becomes more prominent. That's just something to 
really try to ascertain as you move through the process. I've always found that a, a really knowledgeable oncology nurse tends to know the answer to that question. Um, the oncology nurses are extraordinarily valuable uh, in just about every treatment setting. Uh, it's the oncologist of any subspecialty and the oncology nurse who are consistently present for all of the visits. Um, the other team members are um, such as social workers, nutritionists, physical therapists, and go on and on, um, are common in larger centers, but not necessarily in smaller treatment centers. So if something isn't clear, ask a nurse. They generally, um, they generally know. As a caregiver, sometimes uh, it is important to clarify a sign or a symptom that you've seen uh, that the patient may um, be aware of but isn't bringing up. Those are the kinds of um, of, of real uh, interventions that can be extremely helpful in having everybody get the right information. Other thing that's important is to carry a list of medications with you. It can be on your phone. It can be on a piece of paper. Uh, the technology isn't important. The information isn't important. Uh, information is important. Um, it, many, many of our patients are treated by a number of doctors um, and advanced practice uh, providers. Some of the medications are added, subtracted. It's important to have an up-to-date list so everybody is well aware. Another thing that we found that many of our many patients, and we are all patients at one time, are um, kind of reticent to talk about some things that are extremely personal, like bowel or bladder problems. Um, sometimes a nudge from a caregiver can make those obvious in the discussion, so that something can be done about them. So this is a this is a big job, um, and it's a job that people often take on without sort of getting coached. So we're hoping that this information can help. All of that now is complicated by the fact that some of these um, visits are being made either on the phone or uh, through a video conference or telehealth system, um, commonly called a platform. Um, the um, the use of these is uh, pretty much the same, even though the brands vary widely. Um, if you have a device at home that has a camera and a speaker and a microphone, you can communicate with the provider and provider's office, see each other, um, hear each other, uh, respond to each other, but obviously can't touch each other. Um, and that, that provides some challenges, but this can be very, very helpful, especially in, in these days. It does mean that you have to have the proper equipment at home, which is a limiting factor for many of our patients, um, when the phone, a regular old-fashioned phone is pretty much the way to go. So if you're going to have a telehealth visit, think about a place that's quiet, that's well-lit, Having a light in front of your face is really helpful rather than a light in back of you where most of us have to read. Um, in getting a good picture, that's transmitted from place to place. Um, hopefully, um, you'll be familiar with or somebody will call in advance to make sure that you know how to use the um, software, what to click on, how to click on, how to click off, how to make sure that your microphone is on or off, how to adjust the volume, those sorts of things that make the technology worthwhile. Um, there's a, there's a, there are good and bad ways about where to place your camera, where to pl place the microphone so that everything can be heard. Um, some of that is, um, is a bit of touch and go and experimental, but you'll find that out as you go along. If it's a first visit, perhaps the um, office of the provider will actually call you in advance and have you test the equipment. All of this is predicated on a good internet connection, and internet connections vary widely, not only across the country or around the world, but in one neighborhood to the other. Um, if your internet connection is not adequate, then you may be um, best to do a, a, an audio uh, consultation or audio visit only on the phone. Um, if it's a first visit, lots of information needs to be handed back and forth in advance. Um, you'll find out if that needs to be done by uh, old-fashioned U.S. mail or by fax or by um, scanning the information and then putting that in the electronic record 
or uh, sending me information, and all that will be done in advance. That information is vital. To you, it's second nature. But to the provider who's meeting you for the first time, that information is really important, and that will include the medication list, a list of other medical problems that may have existed before the cancer uh, was diagnosed, may be connected or not. There may be a number of questions about family history and personal history of other illnesses. It's always good to think about that in advance. I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody for the first time, um, a caregiver and a patient will debate, oh, Uncle Charles, he had something in the stomach. Was it in the colon? Was it in the stomach? Um, find out if you can uh, in advance. That can be very helpful. Um, the um, call will hopefully be able to get as much of the information back and forth in two ways as a, um, a visit in person without the ability to do a physical exam. And some of those things may have to be deferred um, or they may have been done by another provider very recently. And that would be determined within the call. Um, as the call uh, progresses and then comes to an end, please make sure that there's a plan in place. Um, the plan may be to collect more information. The plan may be to have more tests. The plan may be to be, to start treatment. But make sure that there's a plan in place. That's really essential because this is part of an ongoing process of diagnosis and treatment. Um, patients and families are sometimes concerned about privacy issues. Those are um, on everybody's mind. Um, the... Um, uh, telehealth platforms are generally private because of the um, COVID-19 uh, situation that we're in. A number of the less private uh, ways to communicate through some things like FaceTime or WhatsApp or Skype um, are currently legal to use, but just be aware that there may be a small, and it is probably small, risk of uh, privacy violation. But under the circumstances, we're really left to do that. And telephones so far seem to be uh, the most private, but again, that may not be exactly what you need. So privacy issues are um, all of our um, on all of our minds. Final thing I'd like to offer is that caregivers who do not live close by to the patient were often um, unable to join um, the, either the initial consults or the follow-up visits because they lived in another city or in another country. And now, uh, through the benefits of technology, the, they can be the one. They can be the caregiver involved in the care from start to finish because if they're in another room or many thousand miles away, if they have a good um, electronic connection, they can be part of the process. So with all of the obstacles that have been put in place now with the current situation that we're living in, there are some positives about involving the people in your network who are the most important to you and the ones who can be the best caregivers. Brought up a lot of sort of technical things about how to communicate and what to do um, now and traditionally. These will change over the coming months, um, and I bet there'll be some questions. So I'm going to end and turn this back to Dr. Messner. Thanks, everybody. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding and really um, just an excellent presentation about how important the caregiver is the whole use of the telehealth and telemedicine appointments and how to prepare for them, and, of course, a call-out to the long-distance caregiver, whom we know now can participate more actively. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Um, our next speaker is Sharon Flynn. And Ms. Flynn is an oncology social worker. She's a nurse practitioner, nursing research and translational science. Clinical Center Nursing Department, National Institutes of Health Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is going to be addressing managing family and friends and coping with special occasions, holidays and birthdays, and self-care tips for managing stress. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. And thank you to Dr. Sabari and Dr. Fleshman for their outstanding presentations. 
And I wanted to expand upon a point that Dr. Fleshman uh, made about your telehealth appointment and having that plan of care when, by the time you end that call. Um, part of that plan of care is knowing who to contact in an emergency. Um, we may have been hesitant to call 911 with the COVID emergency, but 911 is still working. And um, as we know, questions come up uh, 2 a.m. on Saturday nights. So to know who to call is vitally important. And so I just want to say um, thank you for being on the call today. Um, whether you're a person living with lung cancer or a caregiver of someone who um, has lung cancer, you recognize the importance of the caregiving role. And I'm so glad that you made time for us today. So I'm gonna to talk to you first about managing holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, which are usually a time where we gather together and celebrate a milestone with our family and friends, either at a restaurant or at someone's house. And we usually exchange hugs and well wishes um, and just because COVID may prevent us from giving each other a big hug, it doesn't mean that we um, shouldn't gather in some form, whether that is through an online platform um, or we pick up the phone and call someone or FaceTime. Um, it's still important to recognize celebrations and not to skip them. Um, these are important milestones. And so I have just a couple of tips to get us started. Um, first, there's no right way to celebrate. Be creative and think of ways that you can modify perhaps old celebrations um, to incorporate everyone that may not be able to come over to your house um, and socially distance. Maybe you were used to going swimming or playing a game of football in the backyard to celebrate that family tradition and um, now you can't think of pulling everybody together to celebrate a birthday or a holiday without performing those uh, traditions. So I want you to think outside of the box. Um, maybe it is inviting one person over and um, socially distancing by being on maybe a deck um, or outside gathering, uh, celebrating that birthday. It might be getting all of the family together on a platform um, like um, you know, there's many platforms out there like Zoom and Skype um, and have um, them sing happy birthday to that loved one um, and have everyone share a favorite story. It's about making those new memories and celebrating some of those old memories um, and respecting your loved one's decisions. Um, remember that their experience is unique to them and without their input, um, too many phone calls or activities might be overwhelming. So talk to your loved one about your feelings, listen to their feelings, and reflect upon what the occasion means to both of you, what's important and who's important to be there to celebrate that. And that communication, not just between you and um, the person with lung cancer, but also extends to your family and friends who may not know the pressures that you're under uh, during uh, a typical day of fighting cancer and caregiving for someone. Help them to understand by describing what help you need. Um, it can be hard to ask and help um, and receive help, um, but it's important to remember that others are grateful for that opportunity to do something for you. And it might make you easier to think of it in this way. Um, think about the last time that you helped a friend or a family member, how good that made you feel. Um, and so you can always pay them back later, um, but right now give yourself permission to accept that help. Um, one other thing is maybe you want to use technology, um, including emails, social media sites, um, CaringBridge, other um, websites out there to communicate the type of help that you need. Um, having a list of items that um, others could help um, you perform, such as shopping for groceries, mowing the lawn, maybe taking care of a pet. Um, have an ongoing list. Um, for people that, that um, call you and want to help you um, and so that you can tell them a task that would really be helpful for you. I know um, for me, I faced a serious health crisis um, in the winter 
and my husband was overwhelmed with taking care of me after a car accident. And so I was very grateful for a dear friend of mine who stepped up to be kind of the community spokesperson. She sent out the emails um, to family and friends, and that was a huge relief for my husband so he could focus on other things, um, including taking care of me and and um, only had to, you know, during times of crisis, only um, had one person to communicate with, my, my good friend. And I am forever in her gratitude for taking on this role. Make sure that you notify your healthcare provider about um, specific medical concerns that might impact your ability to celebrate um, this holiday or family tradition. Your medical team can suggest ways um, your loved one can more fully participate in that celebration, whether they're at home or whether they're at the hospital. If you have certain holiday traditions that involve fasting um, or eating meals at designated times, make sure that your healthcare team is aware of that. It might impact um, the safety of the medication that you're taking. And so if they know that you are fasting um, maybe um, for several hours during the day um, for religious reasons um, or for other reasons, they can adjust your medication schedule um, to make sure that those medications are working the best that they can for you. Stay positive and finding inspiration. Um, being a cancer fighter, survivor, and caregiver are all really tough jobs. So trying to stay positive can make a big difference. Um, find motivation um, wherever you are. If you are a nature lover, um, spend some time outside each day, even if it's five minutes. Um, just uh, just soaking in the sun or maybe the rain, um, looking at the, your surroundings. Um, maybe it's a special song or a, a video, trying to stay positive um, and telling yourself that you can do this because I know that you can. And so for help managing stress as a caregiver, I want to encourage you to set aside time for yourself. Now, setting aside time for yourself doesn't mean going to the grocery store. It doesn't mean waiting in line for a prescription. I really want to encourage you to go for a walk to play your favorite songs, to dance along. If you have a hobby um, that you've been neglecting, now is the time to um, think about taking up that hobby again. Maybe it's reading a book, watching a movie, calling a friend. Um, these are all ways to relieve stress and anxiety. Give yourself permission during this difficult time to smile, to laugh, and to have fun. And the basics of finding balance in your life, um, it's, it's hard when you're fighting cancer and then with the added complication of COVID that you forget, I forgot too, um, in the beginning of the COVID days um, about eating and sleeping. Um, I wasn't taking my steps per day. I, I dropped down, I think one day I was probably about 2,000 steps. And I thought, oh, why am I so sluggish? And so um, I knew that just being around the house, I needed to increase my steps and find ways to do that to get some exercise. So you can socially distance, put on your mask, and walk with a friend um, outside. Um, so continue to exercise. Um, how are you sleeping at night? Um, and what will make your sleep better? If there are, are certain activities, if you have a, a bedtime routine, um, remember to go back to that if you've perhaps gotten away from that during these stressful times. If you need assistance, um, maybe you're a, a, an early bird, um, maybe having um, uh, another caregiver come in and kind of do the evening and overnight work will be helpful. Um, please do that. And be sure to keep your own doctor's appointments. It's hard when you're taking care of someone else um, to, um, to not think about when your next doctor appointment is. But it doesn't mean that you get to ignore your medical needs and just focus on your loved one. Um, as much as you can, keep on track for regular medical checkups. And in the time of COVID-19 uh, doesn't mean that we get to skip all of our recommended cancer screenings, such as mammograms and colonoscopies. We may have to put them off for a bit longer, but it doesn't mean that we completely ignore them. Um, so make sure that um, if you have one scheduled for um, 
right now and you, and your area isn't open uh, to that, that you reschedule that appointment. Um, do you need to get a medication refill for the medications that you're on? Make sure that um, not only are you getting refills for your loved one, but also for you. Keeping a journal um, or finding some outlet for your feelings to help process them is helpful. Um, it doesn't have to be a paper and pen journal, although it can be. It can be an electronic journal on your laptop, tablet, or phone. Um, you might be worried that the immunotherapy or chemotherapy isn't working for your loved one. Maybe you're worried about your current financial status. A journal is a great way to get those thoughts onto paper and to help tackle them. Um, it's just one point um, in helping relieve the stress. And maybe journaling isn't um, something that you have enjoyed in the past. Maybe um, you're, you uh, like photography or gardening um, or painting as a way to process your feelings. I encourage you to do that. Um, and then as you're kind of working through your feelings, look into counseling services. Um, everybody needs someone to talk to, and this is especially important when you're going through a stressful period. Sometimes caregivers feel that they need to protect or shield their loved one from stress, anxiety, worry, um, or a sense of doom. Talking to a professional counselor, such as a social worker um, at the cancer care team, can help relieve some of the stress of caregiving. Give yourself permission uh, to talk about your individual needs, your questions, your feelings. Um, being emotionally fit can help you with the stress of caregiving. And consider joining a support group. Um, support groups have changed, especially in the last couple months. Um, they're no longer face-to-face, -face, um, but they have gone online, and um, they are available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes in real time, you can um, talk to someone online through a platform or a tele telehealth visit. Um, so ask your healthcare team um, about the services that they offer through your hospital. And then I know that um, our other speakers will talk about the other counseling services offered. And definitely ask for help. Um, here in America, in our culture, we like to think that we can do everything ourselves and that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And this simply is not true. We need everybody's help starting with the medical team and ending with the post office to get us through this situation. And so if you need help, please ask for help. We all need help with something. Um, if you're trying to maintain working through the day and you're unable to make the telehealth appointment at 10 a.m., ask the healthcare provider if maybe you can have the last appointment of the day. Maybe a 5 p.m. would be better for your work schedule. Ask your neighbors friends, extended family, community members um, for help. Um, they, I know that they all want to help you, and they're just um, waiting for you to, to tell them what they can do. So having that list is especially helpful. I have a good friend um, who um, is, has her husband is sick, and um, she's exhausted because he's up multiple times during the night. And so it's helpful for her to have a nap during the day. And so um, because of the time of COVID, they haven't been able to have someone in the house. So they set up a, um, an online um, through, a, through a platform like Skype or Zoom, and they play virtual games. So they've been playing Monopoly, and they've been playing Battleship. So the husband is entertained. Um, he has um, an activity that he's doing with with the with the friend, and his wife is able to grab a nap, um, and so she's more refreshed. And so we have to keep thinking of ways out of the box um, to ask for help and to help others. And as I'm winding down, are you feeling depressed? Are you both still in a state of shock from the cancer diagnosis? We know that this can affect the caregiving experience. One of you might be tempted to skip a dose of your medication, maybe skip a medical appointment, um, forget uh, purposely to pick up a refill, or even think about skipping an entire cancer treatment, um, thinking that it doesn't matter. Well, I'm here to tell you that you are worth fighting for. It does matter. Um, please talk to your healthcare providers. We are here. Um, to support you, um, all you have to do is reach out.
And so as I'm winding up um, or winding down here, I would just like to do a quick breathing exercise. So if you're not already sitting down, I'm going to have you um, sit down with your feet on the floor and find a comfortable position in a chair. Um, if that's not possible, that's okay. You can stay standing up. Um, and what I want you to do is think about a location that makes you happy. It could be a beach. It could be sitting on a swing. Um, it could be at a park. And I want you to close your eyes and think about this happy location. Can you see the vivid colors where you are? What sounds do you hear? Are there birds chirping in the background? Are there waves crashing? Do you hear the bell of the ice cream truck coming through? And now I want you to take a couple of deep breaths, as deep as you can, in through your nose and out through your mouth. And if you can, take a deep breath in, and we're going to hold it, and then exhale. Okay? And then we're going to take another deep breath, but I want you to put a smile on your face. So you're thinking of your favorite location. We're going to take a deep breath in. You're thinking of your favorite place, and exhale with a smile on your face. And we're going to do that one more time. Deep breath in, and hold it and exhale and I want you to keep smiling and gently open your eyes kind of lean into that experience of being calm you can do this simple breathing exercise anytime anywhere you don't have to be um, sitting down or with your eyes closed and in conclusion for our caregivers and for our patients you are not alone there are networks like cancer care and longevity to support both the caregiver and the patient through this sometimes difficult journey. Today's phone conference is just one of many resources that are available to you. Remember, you can do this. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the call today. I wish all of you the very best and look forward to your questions and caregiving tips that you have to share with the group on this call. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Flynn. That was really wonderful. I know that we're all much more centered because of your relaxation technique tip that you gave us at the end. And that's something that everyone can do. Um, and I also just your content was so wonderful. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the during the Q and A, and your compassion um, really just and your expertise really was so riveting for all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Katie um, Brown, and Ms. Brown is Vice President, Support and Survivorship Program, Longevity Foundation. And remember, Longevity Foundation really um, has worked with Cancer Care on this program today and a number of different, different initiatives. And, uh, and Ms. Brown was going to address the Longevity Foundation's free programs and services um, the Lung Cancer Helpline, and also she will also be discussing um, another wonderful service that um, they have, which is um, Breathe Easier Fund. So I'm going to, and maybe other things as well, I'm going to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you to the previous experts for such great presentations today. Longevity is proud to be a partner on this program and to be partners in, in helping to support all those who are impacted by lung cancer. And as a former caregiver for my dad who had lung cancer, I know personally how important all this information is today. So let's talk about our support services. Um, Longevity offers the largest online network of support and in-person survivorship programs for all people affected by lung cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, their family members, even healthcare providers. Um, we have peer-to-peer -peer programs for patients and for caregivers. We also have um, our lung cancer support community, which is a dedicated social network for anyone touched by lung cancer. We have different forums on there. They are moderated. And um, it, it's very similar to, to a Facebook for people with lung cancer. There are over 400,000 postings on there. Um, we do have peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. We have multiple online communities. 
And we have uh, COVID-19 specific resources as well. Um, we put out a weekly COVID-19 update, which is uh, very, very targeted to people who have lung cancer. We have FAQs for COVID-19, and this is, again, um, people impacted by lung cancer and their families. We provide self-care for patients and their caregivers, which um, are videos. You know, we had, had a great meditation, very short meditation a minute ago. We have um, videos of meditation on our website as well as yoga and other self-care tips. And then COVID-19 policy initiatives as well as financial assistance during COVID-19. And that brings me to our Breathe Easier Emergency Response Fund. And this is a fund that we launched to help financially support life challenges for lung cancer patients and their families during this COVID-19 public health emergency. So the Breathe Easier Fund will offer financial assistance to eligible lung cancer patients and their families to satisfy their critical basic needs, food, transportation, household bills, and it's a support in the amount of $500, and that'll be provided to eligible patients and families. So you can learn about this through our Lung Cancer Helpline, which we, we have in partnership with uh, Cancer Care. Um, our Lung Cancer Helpline is 844-360-5864. And Monday through Friday during business hours, call as often as you need. And you're able to um, – the your call is being answered by oncology social workers. And you're able to call at any time during your lung cancer journey. And they can help you manage your emotional, financial, and support challenges. And you can also call that number to inquire about the Breathe Easier Fund. And then one last thing I want to talk about is our Caregiver Resource Center on our website. We have um, great caregiver tips, resources for caregivers, um, lots of videos, uh, downloadable questions to ask the doctor, um, to use some of the great uh, tips and information that was provided here today. So um, please, you know, reach out if you're a patient, if you're a caregiver looking for some support. Please reach out through our through our helpline on our website, through Cancer Care, and through Longevity. As a former caregiver, um, it's it's the hardest role I've ever had, um, but it was also the most rewarding role. And with the right tips and tools, uh, you'll be able to help your loved one through this cancer experience. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Katie Brown. Uh, thank you, Ms. Brown. I really want to thank you, and you're an inspiration to actually everyone on this call today. Um, also, um, having walked in the role of caregiver, and also, um, and also for the amazing um, services that the Longevity Foundation offers. And uh, please, we do also. We're mentioned. Ms. Brown has mentioned them because we do want you to take advantage of these programs. If you don't know of them already take advantage of them now, and, and the helpline is a great way to call to get that information. So thank, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from um, our participants. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. I'm director of education and training at Cancer Care. And I want to talk about our free programs and services that we offer. So cancer Care is a national organization, so we help people throughout the United States. And our services include both practical and financial assistance, and these are very much needed at these times, and those programs have grown tremendously. Um, and we also, and our financial assistance is for people in the United States. If there are people listening, and there are people listening from other countries, if you visit our website um, and actually identify your issues, we will try to connect you with resources in your in your country. We are we have very large databases of information to connect you, um, and. Um, we also do offer uh, support services um, and case management services to people coping with um, with lung cancer and with all cancers. And so, um, to contact us um, using our Hope Line, you can call one eight hundred eight one three four six seven three or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And our website, you can actually identify your question, and you can also see all the different services we offer. Um, so that you can take advantage of them. These workshops are one of those services. We also have publications and a lot of other services um, to assist you. 
Um, so that I think just to echo what um, a number of our speakers have said, and Ms. Brown particularly, you're not alone. You basically, there are so many services out there for you, and we're here to help you. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, so, uh, Crystal. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then one. So this is um, uh, a question for our online participants. Um, So how can I help, my, this will be actually for, I'm going to ask um, Ms. Uh, Flynn if you could start with this one. How can I help my sister who has lost her confidence um, due to her lung cancer? Um, and um, if you could address that, that would be really helpful. Great. What a, what a great question. Um, and so for your sister that has, has lost her, her confidence, um, I would say start by kind of rebuilding that confidence with the things that she loves to do. What is she good at? Um, point out those things um, versus the things that maybe she's not able to do right now. So if maybe she enjoys, um, has in, in the past enjoyed gardening and has lost a little bit of her confidence in going out um, into the garden and, and doing some heavy labor, um, start with something um, that is manageable for her and kind of build up those tasks um, as she's able to. Um, or have her kind of come out there, sit in a chair, and supervise you or maybe um, someone in the neighborhood that can help with uh, that gardening. I'm just using gardening as a task. Um, to kind of help her rebuild um, her confidence with um, progressively um, larger tasks as she's able to do or supervising those tasks. Um, and um, maybe ask her how she lost um, her, her confidence too. Um, and maybe there's something else maybe going on in the background um, that she's that you feel she's lost her confidence, but maybe she's struggling with maybe side effects from her medication. Um, they might be having her maybe feel sleepy. Maybe they're having her feel depressed. Um, maybe she's a bit overwhelmed. And so if you're able to spend some time with her and um, see if there's something else kind of going on in the background and um, talking to her healthcare team about that. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. Thanks. Excellent. And I hope that helps. And um, a question um, for uh, Dr. S uh, Sabari, um, if you could just say a little bit more. You did address this a bit in your presentation. My wife is on chemotherapy for adenocarcinoma um, and having some side effects. If you could comment just on that, on this treatment. Yeah, so chemotherapy is a really broad uh, term for different sort of cytotoxic or medicines that can kill uh, cells that are dividing rapidly. So unfortunately, they, they, you know, can kill normal cells as well. And the most common side effects are fatigue, uh, potentially nausea, you know, maybe emesis, vomiting. Um, some chemotherapies have hair loss. And it's really important to talk to your care team uh, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the nurses, the, the physician assistants, to really go over what are the side effects and what side effects are attributable to the treatment because we can often help improve those. So one option might be lowering the dose of the therapy, for example. Um, one option may be extending the time between which getting the therapy. Uh, other options are treating the individual symptom with different medications. So there are lots of good strategies to treat different side effects. So the key piece of advice that I would give is really reach out to the, the health provider, the team, uh, and engage them. And as a care provider, you know, if the side effect is, for example, constipation, right, I mean, you can really engage the, the team to get the, the information 
And then to really bring that back to your loved one uh, to say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And within this many days, if that's not improved, this is exactly what we're going to do again and reach out to the team. So it really depends on what the potential side effect is. But, you know, unfortunately for chemotherapy, side effects are relatively common. I just want to make sure that you communicate them with your team so that they can be addressed appropriately. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a uh, question now um, for um, Ms. Brown. Um, so um, where can I turn to for um, affordable home care? And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about this, all the resources of Longevity Foundation that might be helpful for them to call. So I would definitely recommend calling um, the helpline, which is 844-360-LUNG. Um, there is a database of resources that are able to help. There's also um, a, a section of our website with resources on there, and it will definitely connect you with um, organizations that could help with um, you know, travel, family care, those types of things. Um, I think it's really important to, as a caregiver, talk with your loved one about what their wishes are and come up with a caregiving plan, and then that way you'll be able to outline the type of resources that you are looking for, whether that's assisted living, whether that's um, house cleaning, whether that's, you know, uh, recruiting other family members and friends to help with your, uh, with your caregiving role. Excellent. And I think between both Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care and many other organizations, definitely all of us can help you to find, I think Ms. Brown has done an excellent job in identifying um, tips and resources for you to get help. And, and really, um, so this is uh, very important. And for many of you on the call, this is probably a question that you're having. Um, and this last question I'm going to give um, to um, if Dr. Fleisch, if you could address this. Um, so my husband smoked when he was in college and gave it up years ago, hasn't smoked in years. Um, and um, But he seems to have, um, he feels that, you know, he feels that the, his family feels that his lung cancer is because he smoked in college. Could you just comment on that a bit, Dr. Fleischman? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, don't say how old you and your husband are, uh, but it probably doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, at a time in our recent history, smoking was considered glamorous and cool and the thing to do. And for any uh, recent history buffs, if you listen to some of the old uh, radio drama shows from the 40s and early 50s, they actually encouraged smoking as being healthful. Um, times have changed. Our knowledge base has changed greatly. Um, we know um, facts uh, perhaps differently than uh, the assertions from those days, um, but it's important to keep the context of the time in mind. Uh, many people smoked because they thought it was um, helpful and they enjoyed it, and they even may have been told that it was um, a healthy thing to do. And that context is really important because it's really hard to sit here in 2020 and look back on those days and um, without remembering exactly the kinds of things we were exposed to in the media um, and the people around us. Can I comment Excellent on that? Point. Yes, please. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes, so, please. So I think there's a lot of stigma related to smoking and lung cancer, and, and that's probably why, unfortunately, lung cancer hasn't had you know, the amount of research and sort of publicity as, say, other cancers like breast. But it's really an unnecessary stigma, right? The only reason that, you know, physicians, clinicians ask patients about their smoking history is really because they want to understand what treatment might be best. Um, but, you know, patients who have smoked or have never smoked, they're no different to me, right? It is true that in some people who have never smoked or smoked a small amount in the past, their risk of having specific mutations are 
higher than in people who have smoked. But I'll, I'll tell you, in 2020, there are lots of clinical trials for patients who have smoked who have specific mutations. For example, KRAS, K-R-A-S, is a relatively common mutation that we're now able to uh, um, uh, uh, sort of block with a uh, clinical trial drug. So what I tell patients when they worry to me or they openly worry to me about sort of the stigma is, you know, that really there's nothing that we can do to change the past, but I would want them to put all their effort and their focus on what can they do now moving forward to make this better. And I think that's an important point we need to make with our patients is that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human. It doesn't really matter why or how somebody developed this, right? We need to help them, and, and that's the ultimate goal. Oh, excellent. Well, that's really, I have to say, I want to thank our speakers. You've all been phenomenal. I mean, just an amazing group of speakers, and um, and what a great team, and, and great questions as well, which really allowed our speakers to elaborate further on issues of concern to all of, of you. And um, I know there are many, uh, we, we know um, that um, there are many more questions in queue, and so I do want to say a few words about the questions and also about leaving you with resources, of course, um, which you've heard during the program as well. If you asked a question during this program or if you have a question you'd like to ask and didn't get a chance to ask it or still have a question or heard something and it makes you think about the question, please take it to your healthcare team to start with. Go back to your healthcare team. They know you the best. They've known you for many, many years or for many years or for been treating you, and they know all about you. And so they're a great source to go to. And for those of you who we know like to go to credible resources to get information, I cannot think of a more credible resource than Longevity Foundation. They have wonderful information on their site. Um, and, of course, um, so do take advantage of that as a resource, both in terms of their website with information and all of the resources that they can offer. And I also um, want to uh, really suggest that all of you really take advantage of um, their helpline as well as their Breathe Easier Fund as well. It's a great resource, particularly at this era right now. People are having so many struggles. They have such wonderful resources. And I also, um, for those of you who want to take advantage of the resource at Cancer Care, because we actually are, we work together, the, the organizations, we are separate, but we do have some things we share together as well, um, you can contact Cancer Care as well. Um, most importantly, we do not want any one of you to feel you're alone. You're now part of a network of services that are available to all of you, and in those moments, we, it is normal to feel alone, particularly in this era of social distancing and being a, a little bit more alone, physically alone, away from other people than normally um, in different parts of the country, U.S., and in different parts of the world. We do, of course, um, recognize that that's a normal feeling to have, but when you're feeling that way, there are places you can call for help, your healthcare team and all of these resources. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.